the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again. Follow us at danproftshow.com. The podcast there as you can on Spotify and iTunes. On social media, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show, and that includes Parler. President Trump yesterday uh, posting a 45-minute dissertation on the election challenges his campaign is pursuing, calling the speech perhaps the most important speech he's given. Here was effectively the thesis statement of the speech, including an example to underscore the thesis. We have in all swing states major infractions or outright fraud, which is far more in numbers or votes then we need to overturn the results of a state. In other words, in Wisconsin, as an example, where we were way up on election night, they ultimately had us miraculously losing by 20,000 votes. And I can show you right here that Wisconsin, we're leading by a lot. And then at 3.42 in the morning, there was this. It was a massive dump of votes. Mostly Biden, almost all Biden. And to this day, everyone's trying to figure out where did it come from? But I went from leading by a lot to losing by a little. And the predicate for what transpired. All of the Democrat efforts to expand mail-in balloting laid the groundwork for the systematic and pervasive fraud that occurred in this election. And I actually liked uh, the use of uh, a tangible example like he gave with Wisconsin with a Ross Perot style graph included because it focuses on one of these legitimate questions and I don't care whether it's answered in the court of public opinion or, or a court of law but it's legitimate what happened at 3:32 in the morning in Madison where do these ballots come from why don't election officials responsible for the administration of the election have compelling explanations in Madison and elsewhere and that also brings in other related issues in Wisconsin such as in some Milwaukee precincts, the you know 150, 200 percent turnout as uh, per the registered number of registered voters in in that precinct or that ward, they have same day voter registration in Wisconsin. So certainly it's theoretically possible, but it's also wildly anomalous. And uh, of course we have uh, reams and reams of statistical anomalies that all seem to to in this election have redounded to the benefit of Joe Biden, which is in itself a statistical anomaly. Trump saying that uh, despite this, uh, he is prepared to accept the results of the election so long as this. Ultimately, I am prepared to accept any accurate election result. And I hope that Joe Biden is as well. But we already have the proof. We already have tens of thousands of ballots more than we need to overturn all of these states that we're talking about. Well, that second part is uh, certainly in controversy because uh, those claims, as they have taken form in complaints filed with courts of law, 
have not progressed very far. But uh, Trump's summation on his remarks is this. If we don't root out the fraud, the tremendous and horrible fraud that's taken place in our 2020 election, we don't have a country anymore. For more on uh, Trump's remarks, as well as uh, some of the um, remarks that were not reading from the same hymnal from uh, Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood in Atlanta yesterday, Pleased to be joined by our friend Victor Davis Hansen, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, also the author of Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. VDH, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, it seemed like uh, yesterday actually was a, a very good occasion for President Trump to give the sort of dissertation he gave, not only because we're three weeks removed from the election and it's sort of time for a stop, look, and listen update, but also because... Frankly, my, my view, some of what was going on with the legislative hearing in Michigan and that sort of rally event with Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell in Georgia perhaps was not so helpful. No, I concur entirely. Lynn Wood is a Democrat, and he's been a big Democratic supporter. I have no problem with people who change their political views. And Sidney Powell has made charges that, if they were proven, would be the biggest scandal in American history. And the result of this is that they're failing to understand that this is not just a legal problem and a legislative problem, which I think Trump is perfectly right to bring up these questions, both to deter people from future possible fraud and, more importantly, to reassure his base that he cares that their vote counted. But after December 14th, when the electors meet, then we're getting into something like 1876 or 1824 when we're going to – meaning the Trump people are going to try to overturn the state electors that are mandated to reflect a certified election. That means that they're going to have to find enough Republican legislature and fight in each of the states necessary for the 270 to overturn. We haven't done that in over 100 years, and that means we have to have enough preponderance of proof. And I'm not sure that – I think there was a lot of irregularities, and I think they may well have made the difference, but I'm not sure they weren't Mark Zuckerberg pouring $350 million into these sort of – fronts that went out and had yeah. same-day registration. Same day. So there were things that were quasi-legal that changed things under the, the guise of COVID. But now it's a political matter because, as you say, when when people speaking for the president de facto are telling people either implicitly don't vote in Georgia because the system's crooked or don't vote you know, because it may be crooked if you're Sidney Powell, that uh, those two seats are going to be won or lost probably by about the margin Stacey Abrams lost fifty thousand votes, and she and she lost because enough independents and swing voters came out and voted against her. Trump, I think, can get the base to stick with him because he he said to them, "I fought very hard and I tried to do my best, but after December fourteenth, I've got to just expect, respect the Constitution. I didn't get the evidence I needed, but it's there." And then he will be righteously aggrieved and they will vote. But he will not win the swing independent voters if he gives a green light to those guys, because the people will say, I'm sick of this. I do not want to cause a constitutional crisis. I don't want them to reject state uh, mandated electors. What that, so it's not a matter, matter of whether it's judicially right or wrong or laws are broke. It's a political matter, because if they lose those two seats, People, fairly or not, are going to blame not Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood. They're going to blame Donald Trump. Yeah, and, and he's it's... not going – and it's going to be disastrous for the mega agenda, for everything he's worked for, for the 2000, uh, 
2022 uh, midterms, but more importantly to the Supreme Court, the Electoral College, the filibuster, and the immediate. So I, I think now he's getting into areas where he's got to just say, we've got 10 or 11 days, we'll do our best, we'll see what happens, but we're going to respect the Constitution on the 14th of December. Well, and, and the the idea that um, he can try and get through uh, state legislative hearings and ultimately state legislatures, what he can't get through the courts, you know, that, that has a problem, too, which is you have to provide political cover for Republican state legislators Absolutely. in Michigan or Pennsylvania Absolutely. or Arizona to make that sort of move to uh, send a, a competing slate of electors to the Electoral College meeting on the 14th. You can't just say, do this as a as a favor to me, do this because we know something was wrong here. We just can't prove it or get our arms around it. That's not going to be good enough for them. No, it's not. And the irony is that what you're talking about is 51% is better than 49%. In other words, the, the inability to prove that there was cheating when there was probably cheating or something went on doesn't mean that you're going to give up your political future and the conservative practical agenda. And that's what they're asking of those people. They're saying, trust me, the evidence is coming. Decertify the electors. And then somewhat time around January or February, where we don't have a, an elected president and this is contested, I'm going to unload a bombshell. Well, we now we're now you know we're a month out, and there was a reason why you get elected in the first Tuesday, and then you the electors are the, I think the second Monday in December because the Constitution wants to have five weeks to adjudicate these things, and we did. And Rudy, and and all these lawyers, with all due respect, they've done a wonderful job, but they should have been doing this the first week and brought this out. Maybe they didn't get mobilized, but my God, you can't keep doing this and endanger the careers, not only of the people who are going to be redistricting in a census year at the state level, but all of these senators that are going to come up. And most importantly, you know, uh, Purdue came on the Zoom to the came. To, uh, we did a Zoom with him the other day here in California, and he's a very sober guy and he's doing his best and he's trying to be a stern strong Trump supporter, and then understand that Georgia is not the old Georgia. It's six million in Atlanta and the suburbs, and it's six million outside there. And he needs that 50 to 100 to 250 that Stacey Abrams didn't get, but these two guys could get if this thing blows up right before the election into the the electoral college is turned over the legislature. So I think Trump's got to realize that. It's, his own, it's in his own self-interest, too. I want to. Yeah, I want to. Sorry to interrupt, but I I want to pick up and and continue our conversation about these uh, Georgia runoff elections right after this. More with Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution, author of The Second World War is How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. We'll be right back. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show Welcome back to the show. And uh, President Trump, in his uh, speech yesterday, did uh, take the occasion to weigh in on the Georgia Senate runoffs. And he was pretty unequivocal in, in terms of his belief in the importance of Purdue and Loeffler winning those races on January 5th. A very important election that's coming up will determine whether or not we hold the Senate. David Purdue and Kelly Loeffler are two tremendous people. 
Unfortunately, in Georgia, they're using the same horrible Dominion system. And it's already been out that hundreds of thousands, think of it, hundreds of thousands of absentee ballots have been requested. You check it out, who's requesting those ballots. The difference is, it's one state and we will have our eyes on it like nobody's ever watched anything before because we have to win those two Senate seats. And this is after Trump Jr., as we played yesterday, uh, cut a spot for uh, both of the Republican Senate candidates there. This is Donald Trump Jr. The radical left wants to tear down everything we've accomplished, defunding the police, destroying private health insurance, and dismantling the Supreme Court. They'll take away our Second Amendment rights and make it harder for law-abiding citizens to defend themselves in their own homes. On January 5th, the U.S. Senate is on the line, and my father's accomplishments are on your ballot. Now, uh, it seems like Trump Sr. and Trump Jr. get it. They're unequivocal, uh, very straightforward in terms of the importance they're placing on those Georgia Senate races, both control of the Senate, preservation of the Trump accomplishments from his first term and uh, the MAGA agenda, as we were talking about with Victor Davis Hanson before the break. But then down in Georgia, you had Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell offering a different message. I mean, Lynn Wood saying this. Where is Kelly Loeffler here? Where is David Perdue? He ought to be standing right here. Those two people want your vote, then they ought to tell you what we're Get a special session of the legislature now. Do not be fooled twice. This is Georgia. We ain't dumb. We're not going to go vote on January 5th in another machine made by China. You're not going to fool Georgians again. If Kelly Loeffler wants your vote, if David Perdue wants your vote, they've got to earn it. For more on this, we're pleased to be rejoined by Victor Davis Hanson, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution at Stanford, author of The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. And uh, VDH, uh, President Trump is going to be in Valdosta, Georgia on Saturday to rally the faithful for Loeffler and Perdue. But um, there are definitely a percentage of the Trump voters, I hear it on my programs, that uh, agree with what Lynn Wood is saying and saying, I'm not going to participate. It's a rigged system. My vote doesn't matter, and I'm not going to participate And until and unless uh, Brian Kemp and, and Raffensperger get their act together and tighten up the election in Georgia. Well, I can understand their frustration. That sounds logical and maybe even sober in November and December. But is it going to be logical in three months, say in March? or April when the Democrats control the Senate, the House, and the President. They get rid of the filibuster, they have 15 justices on the court, and then they have all three branches of government. And we see this a practical First Amendment, a Second Amendment, Electoral College, by hook or crook efforts to get more states into the country. And when people say, well, we have a constitution to protect us, they need three quarters of the votes to of the states and two thirds of the Senate and the House to get rid of the Electoral College or admit new states. In theory, Yes, but not when you have the Supreme Court that adjudicates whether the Constitution is fluid or fixed. And when they control it, it'll be fluid. So I, then I think in March and April, they're going to say, well, who did this to us? Who's responsible for this? And who, I think they're going to blame Donald Trump unfairly. But so he's got to have to make a decision very quickly and say, you know what? I did all I could to make sure your vote was, was authentic, authenticated and genuine. But you know what? Under our system, I didn't have enough time. So we're going to accept the electors votes, even if it doesn't go our way. And then we're going to have righteous anger and we're going to barnstorm Georgia. And we're going to get you angry and you're going to express that anger by voting for two Republican senators to save the Constitution. And then we're going to come in and win the midterm. And then we're going to come back and, as Jack 
toxins. That would be a much better message to the base than what's going on now. Lynn yeah. Wood, I, I yeah. really admired him, what he's done, with, especially with the, the Covington kids. But he's a right. Democratic lawyer, and he's given to Democratic candidates. And he's not a Republican. He's not necessarily a conservative. He's a Democratic populist. I have a great admiration for him, but his interests are not the same as the president's or the or the Republican or conservative wing of the Republican Party. They're just not. Yeah, no, I mean, I, same thing. I mean, given <laughs> Lynn Wood's representation, not only of uh, Nick Sandman, but of uh, Richard Jewell against the government, too. You hit, yes, there's there's a guy who's gone up and, and represented the little guy against the big state. But in this case, you know, you would think if you're trying to set the record straight, then you fly in formation with the aggrieved party, right? Whether you're formally a member of the legal team or not, you're perceived to be. And President Trump has clearly indicated uh, almost exactly what you just said, both in terms of what he said yesterday. Also, even that sort of utterance at the Christmas party, White House Christmas party the other day, where he said, we're, we're still trying to work and get in four more years, but if not, we'll be back in four more years. And that's a recognition Absolutely. that he's contemplated exactly what you're suggesting. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's what he needs to do. And I think I have great respect for Sidney Powell. She saved Michael Flynn's case. There's no doubt about it with her advocacy and her legal acumen. But nonetheless, when she says, I wouldn't vote under these machines, well, those are the only machines that are going to be there, unfortunately, on January 5th, whether we like it or not. And she said, well, I want signatures and I want a paper ballot. And that's the law in Georgia. The law, it's not the law is wrong. The law has to be enforced. She should be saying there is an existing law that says every ballot must be signed and there must be a paper ballot for every computer vote. And we have a good laws. We just haven't enforced them fully. And if she said that, I would have no problem. But she didn't say that. Well, and, and, it, and it seems to me those people saying it's a rigged system. And again, I, I, I'm with you. I, I, I recognize their legitimate concerns and frustrations over the appearances of the, the appearance of fraud or major infractions or major regularities. But by the way, under this rigged system, the Republicans also picked up uh, at least 12 seats in the House. They they held the Senate effectively pending Georgia. So, I mean, it you know, you have to say, yes, these some some of these things occurred, but it doesn't mean that it's insurmountable. And so certainly uh, winning two Senate seats in Georgia, which still has a lot of institutional advantages for the, the Republicans, that's not that's not uh, uh, insurmountable either. No, you're, and you made a really good point about the state legislators. We flipped three whole states, and the legislatures of three states. I think we picked up 142 seats at the state level. They're the ones that are going to redraw districts, but more importantly, they set, they create voter laws within their own states. And if they get a majority, they can take a second look at mail-in balloting or early balloting. But unfortunately, that won't even matter if because the Constitution says the states, legislatures make state voting laws, except from time to time if the Congress wants to intervene. And we've seen that with the 18-year-old vote or women's suffrage. If they get a hold of Congress, it won't matter that we won those key state legislatures to ensure good voting. It'll mean that they will they will have a national voter bill, I bet, by early summer saying that we, we're going to go to all early balloting and mail-in in every state, whether you like it or not. And the state legislatures, according to the Constitution, can't stop that if you have both houses of Congress and the Supreme Court. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about changing the very idea of Election Day. We're talking about the First Amendment, the Second. Everything is on the table. And for Lynn Wood to go down there and make that demagogic speech and not tell everybody that if they followed his advice, they're going to have their Second Amendment rights, their First Amendment rights, their Electoral College, their Supreme Court altered. That's a fact. 
He is Victor Davis Hansen, classicist and historian at the Hoover Institution, author of The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. BDH, thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We turn our attention now to all things COVID-related and to uh, help us understand some of the recent developments as it pertains to length of quarantine, as it pertains to the distribution and continued testing of some of the vaccines that are pending FDA approval. We're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Gary Slutkin. He's a physician and epidemiologist who's led efforts to combat the uh, pandemics of tuberculosis, cholera, and AIDS. He's a former director of intervention at the World Health Organization and currently tracking and advising governments on COVID-19. He's also the founder of the nonprofit Cure Violence. Dr. Slutkin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Good to be with you. So um, I, I uh, saw this story that Moderna said yesterday it will begin testing its COVID-19 vaccine on children, starting with kids aged 12 through 17. And um, just want people to understand, you know, Moderna is applying for emergency youth authorization for its vaccine, which was reported as 95 percent effective, uh, both uh, applying for uh, authorization, both in the United States as well as in the Western world, other countries. And um, and so people may see this story and say, well, wait a second. I thought, you know, they did this uh, battery of tests before they sought approval. And that would necessarily include young people who ultimately are are going to be uh, uh, in line to get vaccinated too. Why the staggering by age groups? Is this something normal in terms of how uh, a pharmaceutical company brings a drug to market? Well, it's kind of yes and no. I think the most urgent requirements were to uh, ensure that it was safe and effective in in oh. adults and in old and in older people and in diverse um, groups. And so you're doing as as much testing as you can. And I think it's just a matter of first things first. I mean, we've got the the matter of are we going to be able to effectively protect um, people who are over 65 or over 80 and people who are have been the most susceptible. And so um, I think that there was a, a special intention of ensuring that um, that age group and that we'd be able to reach um, people who are have been also disproportionately uh, affected and um and died, which are, have been African-American and Hispanic people as well. And I think they've been a good job of ensuring that diversity. Well, so does, so does, does yeah, does what, the, so does the CDC's uh, recommendation of frontline healthcare workers and then those individuals in nursing homes or long-term care facilities, does that prioritization make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're so long overdue to be able to protect the healthcare workers. And we've lost, you know, a couple thousand uh, uh, healthcare workers and we need them. And um, so it's, it's kind of like giving, um, you know, firefighters enough gear and protection so that they can continue to fight the fire. And then the nursing home residents, you know, we've lost a hundred thousand people there and we're still having outbreaks. So it makes perfect sense. And, and what, you know the people who are 
making these decisions. They're really doing this for impact. They're making decisions for impact. Well, yeah, that would that would be the hope. And then when when you have multiple vaccines come online, I mean, there's all these other you know decisions, logistical decisions as well as ethical decisions to be made. And so when you have multiple vaccines online and various uh, supplies of these uh, multiple vaccines, for example, the Pfizer vaccine, you have so many doses and the Moderna vaccine and perhaps AstraZeneca and so forth. Um, and they have different efficacy levels. They have different logistical challenges. Um, do you just work through uh, a sort of highest best use for available supply based on your prioritization? Or do you do some mix of the uh, vaccines, which, for example, Pfizer and Moderna, both uh, in trials, 95 percent effective? How do you start to you know, sequence the different vaccines from different companies to different cohorts as more and more comes online? Well, I mean, fortunately, um, the Moderna and the Pfizer have exceptionally high rates of efficacy. I mean, just very, so high, and they're really not discernibly different mm-hmm. in terms of um, what they're offering. So it, the difference, of course, is in the cold chain requirements, and that will be, um, is the problem of the distributors. So um, those that have more difficult requirements um, might be um, less available for places that are more distant, and and for example, rural areas. But I think for most of us in the general public, we should not be really trying to select between them Fortunately, there isn't much of a difference or any difference that is discernible now. So take what you can get as soon as you can get it. When we uh, come back with Dr. Gary Slutkin, I want to talk a little bit more about what uh, the the approach to COVID will be in 2021 with vaccines ostensibly online and starting to work their way through various cohorts of the population. More with Dr. Gary Slutkin, physician and epidemiologist who's led efforts to combat the epidemics of tuberculosis, cholera, and AIDS, former director of intervention at WHO, right after this. is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Dr. Gary Slutkin, physician and epidemiologist who's led efforts to combat epidemics of tuberculosis, cholera, AIDS. He's also a former director of intervention at the World Health Organization. He currently tracks and advises governments on COVID-19, and he's the founder of the nonprofit Cure Violence. And uh, Dr. Slutkin, uh, thinking about 2021 uh, and trying to, you know, manage people's expectations about horizon for the resumption of aspects of pre-COVID life, um, the discussion has been vaccines, you know, will not become widely available, distributed to the great swath of the population, perhaps until the spring or the summer. And so the expectation in terms of your advice and counsel would be what? Is 2021 going to look very similar to 2020 in terms of uh, of masks and social distancing and perhaps even the on-again, off-again lockdowns that we're seeing again at present? Well, I mean, this is like a really excellent question. It really depends on what we do as a population because the, I mean, the vaccines are gonna roll as fast as they can roll out. But I think what you're reflecting is probably most likely is that it'll be 
the spring and summer until there is more widespread availability. But the most important thing now for the rest of us who are not vaccine distributors um, is beyond you know trying to get the vaccine as, as soon as it's available is really to hang in there and it'd be crazy beyond u- usual crazy to be taking risks now because we're going to get on the other side of this in a few months. So I, th- I understand the human impulse to say, well, the vaccine's going to be here. I might as well start going back to normal life. It's actually quite the opposite. To that end, how much damage do you think politicians are doing who are sort of saying one thing and then we find out they're doing something else. Uh, Most recently, for example, the mayor of Austin, Texas, telling people not to travel from his timeshare in Cabo. Those sorts of things that royal people and suggest that maybe politicians who are telling me how to live don't take their advice as seriously as they expect me to take it. It really is harmful when there are examples that people can point to when we're not being as strict as we need to be. And so those who are in leadership positions or who are speaking to the public really should be overdoing it. I mean, I don't go out very much. If I go out, I'm staying so distant from anyone, walking way around anyone and trying to go to places where nobody is and still wearing a mask much of the time. And I'm not going into any indoor places where other people are and having groceries delivered. And so that is, I don't want to take any risk. I mean, even should somebody live and go through the horror of not being able to catch your breath and being hospitalized and not being able to have resident uh, relatives there, and then let's just say you you make it, you live, having gone through that fear and your relative is going through that fear, and now you're left with some cardiac problems, and, and then the next thing you know, everybody's vaccinated, everything's normal, and saying, gee, I wish I didn't make that mistake. I wish I could have hung in there. So I, I wouldn't, at this point, I think... People should know enough to not say, well, he does it so I could do it. Or you need to say, I don't care what he does or she does. I'm not taking any risks. I'm going to overdo it. I'm going to be still living and healthy when the spring and summer comes. And I'm going to get the vaccine. Now I'm going to be ready to live normal when it's time to live normal. And thank God, it's, it's not five years away. It's just months away. So people need to, I wouldn't blame anybody at this point but yourself. What is, uh, what's your perspective on vaccine mandates? Do you think those will be necessary for uh, kids to return to schools where schools remain closed or uh, uh, for people to travel? I mean, the, uh, the health minister in Wales is uh, uh, announced that uh, vaccination cards the size of a credit card will be given out to those who receive the vaccine in Wales. And there's already talk about immunity passports and these sorts of things as well. Do you, I mean, do you foresee this, um, these it, sorts of mandates? Mandates and there's something called requirements. So, for example, if you were on, um, you know, first off, schools already have requirements that children be vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella, and polio in order to be admitted to school. So it's right. a fact, nothing new. It protects the other kids. So if your kid... Um, your your own child um, were vaccinated, um, you would um, your kid would be safe, and the other kids would be safe. Yeah, but for example, there's no. But, but, but for example, the, there's no. You're still putting your kid at risk if the other kids aren't vaccinated. 
I understand that the, some of those uh, requirements exist for school, but but we we also know there are there's not a requirement, for example, for the flu vaccine in order for kids to go to school, and so there are some differences here. And the question is, is this one of those things where uh, a requirement should be should be uh, affected? Well, hospital um, employees. I mean, a hospital is um, uh, can make its own rules and regulations that all of its employees um, need to get a flu vaccine. And that's because that, and that's a good thing for you if you're going to the hospital as a patient because then you'll be more assured that your doctor who's at very close range to you or your dentist can't give it to you. And you'd rather go to a place where all of the personnel there have been vaccinated against flu than a place where one of your physicians or dentists or attendants have it. So the, it would be to the advantage of yourself whether that employee situation required it. And there should be a lot of, you know, for travel, you know, for we're, we're, we're taking a lot of things for granted, but we used to have to travel with uh, proof of smallpox, proof of yellow fever, and so on. You know, we've eradicated smallpox, yellow fever is rare. And then for years we showed this proof in order to get to the state where the disease was rare. So it makes a lot of sense. And a lot of this, what you're asking me, is so important because we have to understand the value of some of these public health requirements because we get them and um, and see how much they help us individually and all of us. Would you really go on a subway where everybody had been, um, that you knew everybody had been vaccinated against COVID or where anybody could go? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. That I tell you, that's what I was trying to get to, sort of where you think the public health professionals are on the matter. Uh, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Gary Slutkin, physician and epidemiologist who's led efforts to combat epidemics of tuberculosis, cholera, and AIDS, former director of the Intervention of Intervention at the World Health Organization, who currently attracts and advises governments on COVID-19. He's also the founder of the nonprofit Cure Violence. Dr. Slutkin, thanks so much for joining us. We do appreciate it. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show. You know, our conversation with Dr. Gary Slutkin, formerly of the World Health Organization, so interesting. Uh, we like to run the gamut of uh, public health and medical professionals when we discuss COVID. Obviously, Slutkin is more on the risk-averse side, as came through. But even he had to admit that uh, these uh, do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do politicians undermine the seriousness with which the public treats COVID-19, maybe to some extent rightly so, and maybe to some extent they're being misled by the hypocrisy of their elected leaders. Uh, It's interesting. But uh, there definitely is um, increasing resistance, both in the form of the protesting of that bar owner in Staten Island being arrested, rally for him and uh, for each other, really, again, last evening, as we talked about, Uh, and uh, other imperious actions that drive opposition. For example, a pastor in Maryland gets a citation for opening the church door to some health commissar 
and temporarily not having a mask on, despite the fact he was the only one in the church. You know, that's the sort of stuff that riles people, and it should. And another example of this is a business owner in Portage, Michigan, responding to a similar shutdown imposed by the Ava Perone of East Lansing, a Whitmer up there in Michigan, not dissimilar to Cuomo in New York. And uh, you had a network affiliate news reporter doing a, a, a on-site report, and the owner of the restaurant uh, in front of whom he was, you know, where he was reporting from, in front of the restaurant he was reporting, the owner sees him and he starts uh, engaging him. And it's really interesting what uh, Mr. Gary Morris from Portage, Michigan had to say. Take a listen. The details on why the judge said no. Vargas, uh-huh. is everything okay? Okay. My government leaders have abandoned me. Are you are you the owner? Four trillion dollars of stimulus money. They gave it to who? Special interest groups and campaign donors. I'm Dave Morris. I own the place. So what's going on? What's going on? You know what's going on. Tell me. You tell me. Hey, we got a government that has taken the stimulus money. They gave it to special campaign donors. They gave it to special interests. They abandoned me, and they have put me in a position where I have to fight back. Okay? So do you feel that this is the right thing to do? Absolutely. I feel everybody needs to stand up. Hey, listen. There was enough money to give every family... Every family in this country, $20,000 to go home for two months. They chose to give it to special interests and campaign donors, the Kennedy Space Center, and they abandoned us. So You could have given me money. I'd gladly walk away for 60 days and let this virus settle down. I'm not going to do it alone. Okay? Are you going to continue to violate the state's orders and this stay open? This is a state order. This isn't an order. This is a conspiracy. This is a tyranny. What do you want to tell other restaurant owners who... Wake up. Stand up. This is America. Be free. Wake up. Stand up. Be free. Dave Morris. I think I said Gary. Dave Morris, this restaurateur in Portage, Michigan. I guess you can choose whether or not you're on the side of Dave Morris or those guys at the Max Public House in Staten Island or on the side of politicians like Whitmer and Cuomo. I know whose side I'm on. This is Dan Prof. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danprofshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show, including Parlor. This is a really interesting piece in Quillette about Haverford College in Pennsylvania. Haverford College is one of these small liberal art colleges that are 60 grand a year, right? Haverford College, 3.5% of the student body self-identify as conservative. 3% self-describe as transgender. And so it's interesting because... Like everybody at a elite liberal arts school, the undergrads at Haverford College want to have the full college experience, meaning railing against imaginary wrongs. So they had some sort of school strike against systemic racism, except there's nobody to strike against. The faculty, the administration are all trying to out decry systemic racism each other. But this is really interesting, this observation about Haverford College and this dynamic of no one to protest against, because it disabuses people of, I think, a false premise they have. 
you hear a story about ridiculousness uh, screeching on in the campus of Yale over a missive about Halloween costumes or the lack of a missive about regulating Halloween costumes to make sure they're not uh, culturally appropriating in nature or all of the you know, attack on Brett Weinstein at Evergreen State University. There's so many examples that we've gone over the, over the years. And you say, who wants to pay 60 grand a year to send their kids to one of these schools? In point of fact, what we find out is people are getting exactly what they're paying for. Observation from this piece. When uh, students complained about uh, harm, they weren't really speaking up as activists denouncing racism on campus since there doesn't seem to be much of it. But as consumers whose parents paid good money for them to experience the sensation of transgressive social justice heroism, as one told the author, normally the administrators are the perfect target for student transgression. They take the abuse and they're not supposed to push back. That's part of their role. So, <laughs> right, this, this self-indulgent, I, part of the psychic experience of going to a $60,000 a year liberal arts school is to say, I want my opportunity to be a hero by standing up against wrongs that have nothing to do with my life, decrying them. And you as the administrator, since there's nobody actually presenting any substantive disagreement, you as the administrator role play. And we go through this performative art routine where I'm the righteous protester and you're the man that I'm railing against. And we pay you 60 grand a year to have the kids enjoy this so that they're prepared to be in an HR department in a Fortune 500 company when they get out to actually implement this through diversity training or some other social justice warrior gambit. That, that, that's, so that's what's happening. So how did we get here? Because you start to have generational pileup of a particular ideology, and uh, now they've built infrastructure. It's performance art, but they've built infrastructure that's underwritten by taxpayers to perpetuate it. It's really, really interesting piece that gets at this from an angle I think most people don't see it. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by somebody who does see it. He is Peter Wood, our friend from the National Association of Scholars, where he is the president. He has also written a response to the Ahistorical 1619 Project that we've spoken about quite a bit on this show. Uh, Their uh, Pulitzer Prize for Nicole Hannah-Jones notwithstanding, uh, his... uh, Offering is uh, 1620, a critical response to the 1619 Project. And, of course, we just celebrated the 400-year anniversary of the Mayflower Compact of 1620 as well. So timely. Peter Wood, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me back. Before we get to um, the uh, 1619 Project in your book, now what about that uh, Haverford College example? Well, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a Haverford alumnus, so I pay special attention to Quillette's uh, long essay on it, but I can add something else. I went to college in the fall of 1971 at Haverford, and about three weeks into my first semester there, the Black Students Association at Haverford called a strike. It was a a very odd kind of strike. They issued a single-page statement saying, we're not going to tell you what our grievances are. Look to yourselves, and you will know. (laughs) And They took a vow of silence that no black student at Haverford would speak to any white person until their grievances were met. I was just stunned by this. I arrived at college kind of, if I was anywhere politically, it was probably left-leaning anti-war. At the end of this affair, I had redefined myself as what I've been ever since as a conservative. What happened was that uh, 
I witnessed my fellow students at Haverford in the fall of 71 descend into a incredible hysteria. Students were taking bed sheets and writing out things like, I am a racist on them, and kind of in a Maoist fashion, parading around campus, declaring their guilt. After several days of this, perhaps it was a week, the administration called the whole student body together. That was 850 students at the time, put us in uh, Roberts Hall, which was this unair-conditioned building. It was an Indian summer day, very hot. Under the consensus rules of Haverford's Quaker tradition, no one was allowed to leave the building until we had reached consensus. Consensus meant every single person had to agree. So for hours we sat there sweating as we were lectured on our inherent racism, including us freshmen who had never anything to do with Haverford racism or otherwise, and until we finally capitulated and said, yeah, we're all racist, we couldn't leave. When I did leave, my life had changed. I had seen what liberalism was all about. It wasn't about this sort of freedom of speech and thought and conscience that I had been led to think it was. It was about thought control and, to a certain degree, about the willingness to abuse official power, force your way on other people. So there... 1971, back here we are 50 years later, almost to the day, Haverford is replaying the events of 1971. I don't know, they intend to do this on a cycle in perpetuity, maybe 50 years from now, they'll have another descent into madness, but uh, that's all it is. It's an incredible display of the power of this anti-racist ideology. Well, yeah, but I mean, the Haverford College example, I mean, your experience as an undergrad is so poignant because it reminds people or informs people that what they've seen happening for the last few years has been underway for half a century. And it, it seems to me now we're in a place where the affluent are paying top dollar for the sort of experience you had at Haverford, the sort of experience that undergrads are having at Haverford today and in so many college campuses. And so I, I don't think you unwind that with a presidential election. No, I don't think a presidential election alone would unwind it. I just think that we had better have a uh, kind of reckoning with just how far the country has gone in the direction of being woke. And that reckoning maybe begins with recognition that our elections are phony. So to your book about 1620 and, and the response to the 1619 Project, backed by the New York Times, backed by the Pulitzer Foundation, all sorts of accolades for Nicole Hannah-Jones, even as she's criticized by respected historians across the ideological spectrum in academia. So do you see that pushback that she's receiving, the critiques, including your book, that are being well-received, as changing the course of the 1619 Project curriculum, making its way into K-12 through school systems, continuing to being embraced by big media and thus uh, the premier colleges? No, not yet. I think there's a chance that we can succeed in pushing it back. The Times, I think, was... Uh, humiliated when its fact checker came forward uh, some months ago and said, I warned them that this was false history and they ignored me. And they were humiliated again when uh, it was discovered uh, by my colleague Phil Magnus that they had been stealth editing, going back and changing the uh, 1619 Project text without telling anybody that they were making corrections. and humiliated a third time when Brett Stevens, one of their own columnists, lashed out with a 3,000-word essay basically saying that people like me were right, that uh, this 
project was riddled with historical errors and was a uh, matter of shame to the New York Times' reputation that they had put it forward and stood behind it so ardently for so long. So there are cracks in the facade, but the Pulitzer Center that is promoting this 1619 curriculum in our schools across the country hasn't budged an inch. They're working with the Howard Zinn Center and the, uh, well, with several other left-wing organizations to get this into our schools. Uh, the effort to push back against that has so far not amounted to very much. We, we need clearly to begin to elect school boards and get parental involvement in opposition to this stuff. Uh, I don't think that there's been a great wave of parental uh, umbrage at seeing our entire history curriculum hijacked and replaced with a, a critical race theory approach to the past. He is Peter Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars. The book, 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project. Peter, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show president uh, barack obama on a uh, podcast, made the comment that uh, you lose people with, quote-unquote, snappy slogans like defund the police. You lost a big audience the minute you say it, which makes it a lot less likely that you're actually going to get the changes you want done. The key is deciding. Do you want to actually get something done, or do you want to feel good among the people you already agree with? Yeah, suggesting defund the police wasn't uh, the best uh, pitch to make to larger swath of American voters. Perhaps maybe that's why... They saw losses in the House that were unanticipated. Well, that's why he was such an effective Manchurian candidate for the radical left, because he did talk in those sort of uh, anodyne phrases. Uh, he did use uh, words that are actually value neutral, um, but suggest that they always have a positive connotation like change. Change can be good or change can be bad. But this uh, has drawn a rebuke from the socialist Spice Girls, uh, for example, brotherly love Spice Ilhan Omar up in Minnesota. We lose people in the hands of police. It's not a slogan, but a policy demand. And centering the demand for equitable investments and budgets for communities across the country gets us progress and safety. Speaking of stringing together anodyne phrases. Ayanna Presley, uh, Francis Parker Spice. The murders of generations of unarmed black folks by police have been horrific. Lives are at stake daily, so I'm out of patience with critiques of the language of activists. Whatever a grieving family says is their truth... And I'll never stop fighting for their justice and healing. Um, uh, Rav Aurora, who is a uh, policy guy for uh, who writes at City Journal about uh, crime-related matters. Nine unarmed black Americans killed by police this year versus approximately 7,000 annual black homicide victims a year. But from an ideological lens, like the lens of the Socialist Spice Girls, nine is greater than 7,000. 
-hmm. He goes on to say, of course, killing by the state is different than a repeat violent offender doing the same, but the numbers are not remotely close. So, again, here it's the the rank order of priority in uh, places like Chicago, where you've seen a 53 percent increase in murders year over year. And we're approaching 4,000 people shot in Chicago this year. And, of course, the majority of the victims are black Americans and majority black, young black men. But you, you understand, though, just for, but before we buy into what the left does, what Barack Obama is so good at doing, pretending that he occupies some reasonable uh, moderate position between the polls, all he's doing is saying, I agree with you. You got to package it differently. That's what he's really saying. So, so there's no there's no real daylight in terms of policy agenda. It's in terms of the marketing of the policy agenda. I, I, that that seems to be lost on a lot of people. So, and it, the way it's being covered by the press course, of course. Oh, Obama is you know is reasonable and he's trying to unify and trying to bridge the differences and so forth. He is doing none of those things. He's just trying to package what the radical left is not so good at packaging in a way that's more palatable to the vast middle so that you can actually advance the radical left's flag. That's what you have to see and understand about Obama and the radical left and those that are a little bit more skilled uh, than the Ayanna Presleys and the Ilhan Omars in the art of politics. Uh, For more on the substance of the matter that we're discussing, in addition to a conversation about uh, the administration of elections, uh, as a former Ohio Secretary of State, he has significant experience in that area. We're pleased to be joined again by Ken Blackwell. He's also the former mayor of Cincinnati and member of the board advisors of the Trump-Pence 2020 campaign. Ken Blackwell, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be with you guys. Uh, before we get to uh, the election and the election challenges, um, the, uh, the this you just I'd be interested in your comment about uh, what President Obama said yesterday about defunding the police and the sloganeering, and then the rebuke that he received from you know the the, the more uh, open and out leftist activists like uh, those two members of Congress we mentioned. Well, guys, look. Um, when I look at the uh, cities that are wrecked by violence um, and have become killing fields. Uh, I, I watch how Democrats, and including uh, former President Obama, uh, make all sorts of a, a, apologies. You know, there are those who believe that mayors and city council members and county officials should be working to make cities and counties fields of dreams. And the only way that you can do that is by making sure that there are conditions that are that are right for 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 capital investment. You know, look, capital is a coward. It it, it flees violence, disorder, uh, and so uh, those knuckleheads who are talking about and embracing uh, defunding the police, uh, they are creating uh, conditions for the the fleeing of capital. Um, therefore, you can't get economic growth, job creation, and and create cities that are that, that are fields of dreams. Uh, and so, I think it's just hypocritical uh, of a guy who, during out throughout the last twelve months, has been embracing the agenda of Black Lives Matter, uh, Antifa, or at least po- apologizing for them under the guise that these folks are are, 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 are twisted and motivated by. Uh, their fight against uh, rank <laughs> uh, racism, uh, as if the New York Times notion uh, that we are irreparably 
uh, uh, racist and therefore uh, in need of radical destruction uh, and, and, and then reconstruction versus what we know uh, that in 244 years, while we haven't been perfect, uh, we, in fact, uh, have been uh, an, an, a, 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 a real uh, uh, opportunity society that, in fact, uh, puts a, a harness on, on government and optimizes individual liberty uh, and, and, and believes in, uh, in, in freedom whether that be free markets or the belief that free men and free women uh, can, can do great things together, not great governments creating great nations, but good people doing great things together. So, I mean, this, this guy is, is a real knucklehead. He, he, is, he, he is very uh, art, articulate uh, in advancing uh, the context for big government, whether that be statism, whether that be, you know, Western European style democratic socialism or, you know, good old Fidel Castro form of, of socialism, uh, he, in fact, has to be called out. Now, oh. we, we spent a whole lot of time on, on, on Obama, uh, who, who proved that he is a coward because he won't go back uh, and, and go into those neighborhoods that are, 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 are this victims of gangbangers uh, and, and talk truth uh, yeah. to the people in those well, communities. Yeah, a coward on so many levels. He also uh, tried to disenfranchise black families in D.C. from having the same choices for the education of their kids that he had for his. But that's a story for another day. When we come back with former Ohio Secretary of State Ken Blackwell, I'm going to get his expert opinion as somebody who oversaw the administration of elections on the administration of elections, including by some Republicans in some red states like Georgia. More with Ken Blackwell right after this. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with former Ohio Secretary of State Ken Blackwell. And, uh, Ken, I wanted to lean on your expertise as somebody who administrative ele- uh, administrative elections, contentious ones, close ones in a big state, important state like Ohio, specifically because of the two runoff elections on January 5th, what your assessment is of Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in the state of Georgia, and the governor there, Brian Kemp, because they've received so much criticism from Republican ranks, including the Trump campaign. What is your assessment of their performance in the Georgia state election? Their performance is pitiful. Look, Section 1 of Article 2 of the Constitution says that the power to set the schedules, the conditions, and the, the policies guiding elections in the 50 states reside in state legislatures. What we've seen in Georgia was Republican-controlled state legislature ceded unauthorized power to the Secretary of State, who entered into agreements with Stacey Abrams, 
that weaken uh, the systems that protect the integrity of elections. First, tight chain of custody, making sure that as few hands as possible touch the ballot once it leaves the hands of the voter. I mean, that was this with this massive mail-in voting in Georgia, a state that didn't have the infrastructure to accommodate that sort of rapid increase in the number of mail-in ballots was disastrous because the chain of custody was shot. The verification, Stacey Adams was able to hoodwink this guy into making the verification policies and procedures in Georgia, meaning that you have procedures and policies in place that can verify that the voter is who he or she claims that they are. That was shot. The way that you do that is with signature checks, with photo IDs, uh, and as a consequence of the agreement that he entered into, we saw that verification process as well as the chain of custody processes and procedures just made totally ineffective. And so now we're talking about recounts. Well, to do a recount in a system that has been riddled with procedural errors and vulnerabilities, you have to do an audit. Just putting the same ballots in the same machines, you're going to get generally the same recount. (laughs) That's nonsense. This has to stop. And the intervention, uh, we don't have a governor that has any strength or any integrity in this process. I don't know why they're compromised, but they are compromised. The court has to intervene or the state legislature has to get a grip and understand that they are the representatives of people and they will be held accountable in future elections because people of Georgia know that this election has been railroaded. Uh, your ass- assessment of the, of the lawyers acting on behalf of the Trump team, whether formally part of the legal team or like Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood in Georgia, Georgia specifically, just focusing there as an example. I mean, there's there's one estimate that there's something like 20,000 individuals who didn't meet the residency requirements to vote in the Georgia state election, but voted nonetheless. Seems to me that's an example where the Trump legal team hasn't been as focused as it could be. Zero in on that batch of ballots and run through that batch of ballots, do that that audit specifically, because, boy, you know, you lose a state by 11, 12,000 votes like Georgia, and you've got 20,000 people that one assessment suggests voted and did not meet the residency requirement then perhaps you flip it by being focused and concentrated on these cohorts of ballots that have specific alleged infirmities instead of sort of being at the global level where, for example, Powell and Wood are talking about the Dominion voting systems. Look, in my area of expertise, my lane happens to be in the area of election administration. And so I've been working with a group of lawyers and political activists who I know are well-educated and experienced in that area. Sydney and, and Lynn, they are lawyers. I, I am not. And they are worried about the machine. But the, the reality is, within the calendar that we have, and it's not December the 14th, it's actually January the 6th, we have to make the case that the Constitution was violated, that there's a mountain of evidence, that state legislatures need to reclaim their authority, they need to name the electors. Now, in Pennsylvania and, and now in Georgia, these ballots have been certified, and there are delegates that will go to the Electoral College. But the state legislatures in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, even Georgia, they, in fact, can say, look, here is the evidence that there was widespread fraud and that the outcome was cheated from the president and we have the authority to name electors that would then send two sets of electors to the congress i think we have to play the long game win what we can in the courts but we have to work 
the political constitutional track uh, consistent with the authority of state legislatures to name the delegation uh, that are sent to the Electoral College. He is Ken Blackwell, former Ohio Secretary of State, former mayor of Cincinnati, and member of the Board of Advisors at the Trump-Pence 2020 campaign. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. It's good to be with you guys. Thanks. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Don't stop me. Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, building on our conversation uh, just concluded with former Ohio Secretary of State Ken Blackwell. Uh, part about the election, but uh, the earlier discussion we had with him about uh, Barack Obama's pronouncements over defund police and the response that you from the uh, race-hustling identitarian left. Uh, the backdrop to uh, remark uh, upon the uh, unfortunate occasion of the passing of a great friend of this show and a great thinker, uh, economics professor Walter Williams of George Mason University, who passed away yesterday at the age of 84. Wonderful tribute that... Uh, was offered by Thomas Sowell over at townhall.com. Thomas Sowell's 90 years old. I mean, these are um, just the indispensable thinkers. And uh, the world is a less enlightened place today now that Walter Williams is no longer part of it. Thomas Sowell uh, writing, He was my best friend for half a century. There was no one I trusted more or whose integrity I respected more. Since he was younger than me, I chose him to be my literary executor. Executor, excuse me, executor, executor, to take control of my books after I was gone. I mean, what an honor that is, um, even though they were colleagues, the great Thomas Sowell and the great Walter Williams, the scholarship between th- those two men. Oh, my goodness. It's a library in and of itself. Uh, he um, he went on to recommend uh, Walter Williams' book, Race and Economics, which you should read if you haven't. He also uh, remarked uh, upon Walter Williams as an educator, as a teacher. Walter Williams loved teaching. Unlike too many other teachers today, he made it a point never to impose his opinions on his students. Those who read his syndicated newspaper columns know that he expressed his opinions boldly and unequivocally, but not in a classroom. Right. A bygone era on a college campus. Walter Williams was uh, part of that and uh, did it up until his dying day, being in the classroom teaching students. He... um, uh, Sol also recounted something I, I didn't even know about Walter Williams as many times as I ha- had the occasion to talk to him over the last decade in radio. He uh, said, uh, reminded people that uh, Williams held a black belt in karate. Walter was a tough customer. One night, three men jumped him, and two of those men ended up in a hospital. A man after my own heart on that score. And, and just a reminder of, of the um, clarity of Williams' thinking. Uh, this is uh, from just uh, about six months ago, June of this year, on uh, this program. Williams remarking upon the violence in America's cities that followed the George Floyd killing at the hands of Minneapolis police. Uh, talking about these these cycles of poverty in urban centers. The dependency that afflicts too many American families, disproportionately minority families. 
And the question that needs to be called by the families themselves, by the residents, by policymakers, what does this say about who's in charge and the policies they're pursuing? Well, I, I think you just have to say, well, who is in charge? Who is in charge of these cities? Uh, who is in charge of, uh, of the schools and in charge of other uh, things that have to do with the amenities provided by city government? And you find that it's, it's the Democrats, it's liberals. that It doesn't have anything to do with racial discrimination. It's the liberal vision of the world. I mean, look, in, in, uh, again, talking about Baltimore, in 2015, an average of four teachers were assaulted each school day of the year where they needed medical treatment. In Philadelphia, they're, they're, you can look at the videos. Just, just uh, put in uh, Google search for uh, student assaults on teachers, and you'll see cases where teachers are thrown up against a blackboard. Teachers are, are not out cold on the floor. And, and this is tolerated by, by, by the, the superintendent of schools, the, uh, um, the, the mayors and city councils. It's all tolerated. And, and, and that's real a tragedy, and it affects the most unfortunate uh, members of the black community. And if you look at the middle-class blacks uh, or black politicians, they would never never have their kids in schools that most black people have to go to. Uh, in addition to having the honor to talk to him, I'm glad I had the opportunity to tell Walter Williams uh, when we spoke that uh, I believe him to be one of those thinkers, great thinkers, great artists, who will not be fully appreciated in his time. Thomas Sowell would be another one. There are a few. Uh, and th- it's so important because uh, the Walter Williamses and the Thomas Sowells and the Bob Woodsons and the Shelby Steeles you know, these are uh, men who represent um, living through an era of de jure segregation, living through an era of actual oppression based on a racial order, an illegitimate racial order, that now we're resuscitating in America, but we're just, it's just of a different nature. It's the same kind, a different nature of identitarian order. That's what Jim Crow was. And uh, it was interesting, Sowell remarked upon this letter that uh, Walter Williams wrote in 1975, 40 years ago. Sometimes it is a very lonely struggle to help our people, particularly the ones who do not realize that the help is needed. Yeah, it is. Protect, it's a, it, it, and despite that, Walter Williams never deviated from that struggle. He didn't you know, sort of adjust himself for the times and walk away from what he knew to be true. And it persisted up until his uh, dying day, uh, again, from a discussion I had with him at the outset of the pandemic a little bit earlier this year and the lockdowns, uh, a concern that Walter Williams had. You listen to what he says. This is back in May. And as we sit here in December, see if this concern was not well-founded. I, I worry about much of our reliance on government. I think that the the situation that we are in now is largely a part. It is largely the fault of government. That is the government shutting down businesses and increasing regulations. And I think that when we have any kind of disaster, I don't care whether it's a natural disaster or a pandemic, the best thing that we can do is to allow markets to operate. To to, uh, to 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 minimize the interference uh, in the economy, and 
and we have not done that. Well, the good news is that Walter Williams' scholarship will live on beyond him, and so his thinking will persist so long as uh, those who came to know him perhaps through this show or knew him uh, otherwise continue to uh, spread the good word about Walter Williams' great thinking and great contributions to America. This is Dan Brown. Podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the show and um, a terrible story, unfortunately, out of San Joaquin County in California. And, uh, you know, this is a situation where um, this is an anecdote, this is one case, but. Uh, Perhaps it provides form to the larger issue of concern about the uh, mental health of children during a period of unnecessary, frankly, indefensible school lockdowns. Scientific consensus about the importance of kids in school and the relative safety, perhaps the safest place they can be, it's argued, is in school. And yet because of teachers' unions' whim, their whimsy when it comes to when they will and won't work, their exercise of power, so many kids are relegated to screen time and are falling behind both in terms of their intellectual development as well as their social development, their ability to, social, to interact with their friends. And it's, it's interesting because we talked so much before COVID about uh, this problem that had been presenting itself with kids feeling isolation, being in isolation because they were tethered to screens and social media rather than having a physical contact with, you know, their, their cohorts. Well, this story out of San Joaquin County, California. An 11-year-old child shot and killed himself during a live Zoom class Wednesday morning. The Lodi Unified School District confirming the details with KCRA 3. The young victim attended sixth grade at Woodbridge Elementary School. Neighbors telling us off camera the boy's sister was also inside the home when the shooting happened. They heard her run out of the home screaming for help. One man saying he went into the home with the victim's sister, saw what happened and called 911. He called the victim special and soft-spoken with a beautiful smile. This memo sent to other parents in the district reads in part, at the urgency of one of our students, our teacher was able to contact 911. We want to be sure our students are cared for Please check with your child and let us know if your child is in need of support. San Joaquin Sheriff deputies streaming in and out of the victim's home throughout the day. A small memorial of candles now set up on the pavement. The investigation continuing into how such calamity could befall a child. Talk about uh, long COVID in terms of people who are infected having uh, respiratory problems uh, or neurological problems for months after They've technically uh, had the infection pass through, and they're negative. Uh, we've talked on this show with child psychologists about the long tail of anxiety and mental health-related issues for kids who are locked down, put in effectively isolation chambers, tethered to screens to the extent that they're in any uh, getting any sort of educational exposure whatsoever. And there are real-world impacts. 
Lives versus lives. Lives versus lives, what the conversation has always been. So that case, a tragic case out of San Joaquin County in California, for your consideration and discussion when you're moralized to by teachers' union flax and hacks about school lockdowns. This is Dan. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. Again, you can uh, follow the program at danproftshow.com. Follow us on social media at Dan Proft and at Dan Prop Show, including Parler. Uh, there's a good piece by Jeffrey Tucker at the American Institute for Economic Research about Bitcoin and why it uh, sustains in spite of its critics. He wrote about this six years ago, and he sort of reintroduced it now that more people are talking about Bitcoin because it's up nearly $20,000 a coin. For, for those who didn't catch his analysis six years ago... My thesis is that Bitcoin's value obtains from its underlying technology, which is an open source ledger that keeps track of ownership rights and permits the transfer of these rights. Bitcoin managed to bundle its unit of account with a payment system that lives on the ledger. That's its innovation and why it obtained a value and that value continues to rise. And uh, he uh, goes through some of the history uh, and addresses some of the uh, criticisms from gold bugs, hard money advocates. So it seems like it's a, it's a bigger, more interesting play than just as an inflation hedge or just as a, a way to signal one's discontent with monetary policy uh, associated with our fiat currency. And I say this because this environment and with the prospect of potentially a Biden presidency, many people may be one looking for alternative investment vehicles than the market if they think that tax and spend policy will constrain the exchanges, right? For more on the topic, as well as how the great mortgage boom of 2020 will end, we're pleased to be joined again by Christopher Whalen, who's an investment banker, chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, LLC. He's the author of Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise, and Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream, also the editor for the Institutional Risk Analyst. Christopher Whalen, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Christopher, before we get to a discussion about uh, the mortgage boom, what's your perspective on Bitcoin? Well, I think Jeffrey Tucker's right. It, its fascination is the fact that it was enabled by technology. It's enabled by very clunky technology, though. You know, the Bitcoin security wrap has been defeated multiple times. But originally they said, well, we're going to use these really complicated math uh, equations that you have to solve in order to get your reward as a miner of Bitcoin, and this will provide security. Well, it doesn't really work. So the inefficiency of Bitcoin on the one hand and the fact that it does use technology on the other, I think, is part of the fascination. And, you know, it's the shiny object, as you said. Americans are not rational. None, none of us are. We all have the cognitive illusion that we think we know what we're talking about. And that's the only thing that keeps society stable. We think someone's in charge, right? So is this a tulip craze? Or is it is not, not it's quite electronically that enabled tulips? Okay, um, interesting. And, and it more... comes and goes depending on what's going on. You know, it went down for a while. It, it became moribund, 
And now all of a sudden, with the prospect of Janet Yellen going to the Treasury, the great inflationist, uh, people are worried about inflation. So, yes. Turning to these uh, lockdown and bus politicians who are have exacerbated the cash flow problems, uh, they exacerbated their cash flow problems. Now they're trying to come up with ways to fill the revenue shortfall they've in part created, aren't they? You know, they make most of the money for the cities on property taxes and fees. Right. But sales taxes are important because the state of Illinois gives you a little of that. The state of New York gives New York City a little of that. And that's how they make up a budget, which is comprised of many little bits and pieces of revenue. There's no big revenue items in New York. But, but, but the big but, 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 expenses of schools, for example, it's a quarter of the budget. Of course. But but when you say New York is done, what does that you mean exactly? You think that uh, this is going to be a 1970s redux? You think it's five years before New York recovers no. or something more dramatic? It's- it's it's yeah it's more like the 1930s in terms of just a very sharp drop in demand and utilization of buildings and other assets and so over time we're going to have to mark all these assets down mm-hmm. they're not worth what we thought they were and this attacks the basic foundation of all of the big cities finances which is driven by property taxes so if you can't get the big guys and you know in New York they're still paying but there's an awful lot of buildings in this town that are going to go bankrupt because they just don't have anybody using them. And remember, the Dutch built New York for density. They built it for efficiency and to pack as many people in here as you can. That doesn't work with social distancing. All the old housing stock here, the less expensive apartments in the boroughs, Queens, and the Bronx, you can't social distance in those buildings. We have a big long-term problem. How do we get people to use the city again? And what are they going to use it for? Entertainment, the arts, all of that is done. It's, it's not coming back even next year, I think. Because the expense and the liability of letting people into your building is daunting for an owner. They didn't give anybody any liability this year. You know, Congress didn't do that. They were talking about it, but they didn't do it. So owners of buildings, owners of everything, Disneyland, you name it, they have a problem letting people in because you're going to get sued. Um, mm. I want to go go back to inflation. And Brian Westbury over at First Trust uh, Oh, a good friend the, of mine. Yeah, he tweeted out the other day, the Fed is playing with the inflation fire. Copper prices are up 66% from their late March 2020 low. Aluminum prices up 41% from their May 2020 low. Other commodities, including lumber and uh, the ags, are trading higher as well. Inflation is hard to stop once it starts. Being uh, too cavalier, suggesting that inflation isn't a problem at present, is the Fed? No, he's not. But the toggle here, the thing that is very dangerous, is that all of the political officials we've mentioned, the Fed, the rest of them, are pushing the limit of the world's tolerance of our silliness. In other words, we have these big deficits, we do all these other crazy and stupid things, but we want them to keep using the dollar as the global currency. (laughs) Okay? That's the toggle. When we start to convince people that they should ask us for, say, gold or other currencies to pay for imports, then then you see the inflation. As long as we can keep getting them to use our paper as the means of exchange, you know, there's several dimensions of money, right? Then we're okay. But the moment we convince them to start taking Chinese renminbi or anything else because they no longer have confidence in us, then we're done. You stick a fork in it, right? I, I want to uh, get to this piece that you wrote about uh, the mortgage boom of 2020 and how you think it ends. Uh, because, yeah, because uh, you know, because there's so much interest in um, in real estate right now, and potentially as as an inflation hedge because of low interest rates. So, uh, give us your perspective on the mortgage market. 
Well, in April, when we had the Fed suddenly start to come in and buy trillions of dollars worth of securities, we almost destroyed a lot of mortgage companies, including some very big ones and some REITs like Annalee. You guys have probably heard of them. They almost tipped over because the folks at the Fed didn't understand what they were doing. Now, They've all gone public, or at least some of them have gone public, and the volumes are great, but the spreads are shrinking. Why? Capacity is coming online. The mortgage firms are focusing on this amazing opportunity this year compared to, say, two years ago when they were going out of business. So the, the, the year is going to be awesome. Next year is going to be good, too. Volumes will be good. But the spread that they earn per loan, that gain on sale, was five, six points this year. It'll be half that next year here again. I mean, what, what, what was the bipartisan uh, proposal for COVID relief, a trillion dollars more worth of it? 25% of it was bailing out state and local governments so they could maintain their levels of employment. And that's, you know, including Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, and Susan Collins, who want to prop up unsustainable okay. city and state governments. It won't work, because even if we had done that, you'd still have them hat in hand six months from now. And the Congress would say no, because you, you can't do this forever, guys. This is the problem with our economy going back to 9-11. We've been having all of these little crises, right? And so the politicians said, oh, well, we've got to spend more money. And now we have Janet Yellen coming in at Treasury, apparently, if the Republicans uh, confirm her. And to me, you want to see something that will threaten the role of the dollar in the world? It's having somebody like that at the Treasury, because I don't think she'll, she'll inspire confidence. I want to button something else up on the mortgage issue we were discussing. You talked about uh, the record volumes this year. Uh, look, Next year looks good for volume. What, yes. happens when, what happens when volume recedes? Well, when volume recedes, we start to see the rocks. And specifically, the boom in refinancing has been used by the industry to float all of the forbearance for COVID. All the CARES Act loan forbearance that Congress so, so generously put in place last uh, summer, well, they didn't pay for it. They didn't make the mortgage companies whole. So they're all borrowing money from bondholders right now to keep the, keep the machinery moving, but Congress is going to have to do the right thing and pay for this. And they're going to have to make Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac whole, by the way. That's one reason you're not going to see them going public anytime soon, because they have to pay for all of this. And nobody in Congress is focused on this. You know, unfortunately, you know, Trump, who I love you know, in terms of his policies, is so confused and just such a shambles administratively that they haven't dealt with this. And, and they're going to have to, believe me, they, they will have, we'll have both credit problems two years out, and we will have liquidity problems as volumes slow. That's what you should look for. He is Christopher Whalen, investment banker, chairman of the Whalen Global Advisors, LLC, author of Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise, as well as Inflated, How Money and Debt Built the American Dream. He's also the editor of the Institutional Risk Analyst. Christopher Whalen, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Stay safe, okay? It was the heat of the seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show and as we uh, reflect on the life and times of the great economist and economics professor educator and uh Author Walter Williams, as we were doing last hour, obviously saddened by his passing, a great American that he was. 
but uh, hopeful that uh, the ideas that he advocated for his 84 years on this planet uh, persist, and they do, uh, as as uh, as do the ideas that uh, Walter Williams' colleagues like Thomas Sowell persist. And so that brings us to our reoccurring uh, re- recurring segment on school choice and the success stories. Success stories that uh, we can talk about today because of great thinkers like Walter Williams and so many on the free market economic side who advanced the idea of school choice, who uh, assessed the idea that uh, competitive model in K-12 through education improves the product and lowers the cost just as a competitive model in every other sector achieves the same. For uh, more on this, to share a school choice success story, who's a gentleman who's lived a school choice success story. We're pleased to be joined by Walter Blanks, Jr. He's a communications associate, future leaders fellow with the American Federation for Children. Walter Blanks, Jr., thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, you hail from the Buckeye State, I understand. Um, to t- tell us tell us your story and, um, and, and again, against the backdrop of uh, school choice on the uh, advance in Ohio. Yeah, well, uh, like you said, from from the great state of, of Ohio, um, and um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with with the uh, educational landscape there, but um, just like across the country, um, there have been a lot of, of public schools that have been failing for for quite some time. I often talk to my parents about the schools um, that they attended. My mom's from Columbus, and my dad's from the Cleveland area, and the schools, the high school that they they both went to, is still failing. Um, today and so it was no surprise that the uh, the neighborhood school that I was zoned to um, had been failing for quite some time as well and I was really uh, bullied a lot in that school and teachers saw me as just a constant distraction and uh, I often say that I spent more time in the uh, principal's office than I did in the actual classroom and so that you know as a young kid that that takes a toll on you and um, you know, forget forget trying to learn anything in the classroom. You're just trying to make it through the day without getting in trouble or having your parents come up to the school or you know having the the school bully you know take your lunch money or whatever the case may be. But um, my parents were really desperate to get me in a better you know better environment, a place where they could they could really see me growing and, and flourishing. And so, um, an organization called School Choice Ohio, which is a, a outreach. Um, organization in, in Columbus reached out to my to my parents and said you know Walter um, might be eligible for a, a specific scholarship due to the, to the performance of the school that he was zoned to and so after hours and hours of, of research and, and school visits and stuff uh, we found out that I was eligible and my my parents found a small school. Uh, right in the heart of Columbus, actually called uh, Tree Life Christian. It was a small <clears throat> uh, private school. And in that school, my my trajectory absolutely changed. I remember um, learning about, you know, various things, you know, space shuttle and the Apollo missions and, and, and all these really cool things that I had never learned before. And I remember going home the first day after, after school in the sixth grade, like almost uh, upset with my parents to an extent. Like, why didn't you guys teach me any of this stuff? This stuff is so cool. And, <laughs> and I remember that was the, the first time really where um, my my education and my learning journey kind of became my own. And, and I've, I've had the opportunity of talking to many teachers across the country, and, and they always say one of their biggest joys is when 
they finally see that light bulb go off in, in a student's mind um, on whatever, whatever the subject may be, whether they're struggling, but to see them finally get it and have that aha moment, um, it's priceless to them. And I, and I remember that in, in my own life, and it's still something that I, that I really cherish and value. But fast forward uh, to high school, I, uh, I was exposed to so much. I went to Europe for two weeks. Uh, fell in the Sin River with a good buddy of mine in the middle of February. Hmm. Um, played played almost every single sport that that my school had to offer. I was in plays. Uh, picked up a trombone for quite some time until I, I realized that uh, instruments, musical instruments, is not one of my uh, not one of my strengths. Um, but yeah, just just did all kinds of all kinds of really cool cool things and, and had really cool opportunities. Uh, graduated high school, which uh, teachers told me that uh, growing up that that, w- that wouldn't happen. Um, and then I went on to get my uh, degree in journalism and media production and graduated last May. And then two or three weeks later after graduating, I found myself packing up my car and, and moving out to uh, to D.C. where I reside now, where I have the, the, the wonderful opportunity of, you know, continuing the fight for, for students just like me who are just looking for a way out through through their education. It's really interesting. I, it, I mean, it's, it's sort of jarring, I think, to people hear you, as you say the teachers thought you wouldn't graduate from high school. Um, that's that, It's just a, such a jarring statement, I think, to many people. And, and also, frankly, a touch and go, uh, the, you know, some, some things broke uh, your way and the way of other kids in, in Ohio and around the country when the Supreme Court issued their Zellman decision in 2002 that upheld the uh, Cleveland School Choice Program, Ohio uh, voucher program. And now, because of that Supreme Court decision and because of success stories like you, you have uh, momentum behind it, right? And it continues to build and build and build and extend out such that uh, Governor uh, DeWine just uh, signed legislation expanding the uh, Ed Choice Program in, in Ohio the other week. Yeah, it, and it was it was a huge, huge win. Um, I've been, even though I'm in D.C., I still try to to keep a, a, a thumb on the pulse, so to speak, in Ohio and, and get involved in uh, many ways that I can. So I spent I spent quite a, a bit of time um, late last year in Ohio testifying and um, you know just just sharing my story and trying to really really get some things pushed through. So when that happened last last week, I believe. Um, it was it was huge, and now I think the numbers it's, it's like almost forty eight percent of students in Ohio uh, would be eligible for for the uh, Ed Choice scholarship, and I think it's twofold. I think it will give children you know more access to to a higher quality education, but then for those public schools that say, hey, you know, we don't want our school on this on this list, or we don't want our school to be considered failing by by any metric, I think that will push the um, the narrative for for those schools as well and kind of you know the schools will, will start competing with each other which i think competition will breed excellence across across the board so so i'm really excited but then also in in ohio um they're working to 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 switch up the the education how education is funded uh for public schools and so a lot of really good things are are happening in ohio and and i'm just really really honored and proud to be a part of it uh, yours is a great story. Walter Blanks, Jr., Communications Associate, Futures Leaders Fellow with the American Federation for Children. Walter Blanks, thanks so much for joining us and uh, sharing your story. We appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Yesterday at the speech that uh, President Trump posted, 45 minutes, detailing the election challenges and his perspective on the pursuit of remedying what he called major infractions and outright fraud. President if we don't the, root out the fraud, the tremendous and horrible fraud that's taken place in our 2020 election, we don't have a country anymore. He may be right because uh, we may not have a Republican Party anymore the way it's tracking potentially with the division, at least at present, over what to do about uh, those Georgia Senate runoff elections, whether to participate and make sure Republicans hold the Senate as President Trump and his son and uh, establishment Republicans arguing, or throw up your hands and saying, I'm not participating in a rigged system, which is what some Trump supporters are suggesting, including Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell at their Pentecostal revival slash Trump rally slash press conference yesterday in Georgia. For more on uh, the future of the GOP and by extension the country, we're pleased to be joined again by Ramesh Panaru. He is, of course, a senior editor for National Review, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute who's penned a thought piece about the new GOP and what it may or may not look like. Ramesh, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. So the current... um, rift uh, I was describing with the backdrop of the Georgia Senate runoffs. Is that something that you think is just a function of, you know, exasperation uh, in the moment because of the inability to prove perhaps what many people think occurred and have, you know, and have some reason to believe occurred? Or is it um, a discontent that will persist and really threatens to drive uh, a wedge in the sort of the Trump governing coalition or the Trump Republican Party coalition, if you will? Well, the short-term impact of it is that it could end up costing the Republicans the Senate. So if the Republicans who believe this message that the election was stolen from the president, that Republican establishment figures are not doing enough to combat it, and that there's no point in voting – hand those elections to the Democrats, then they'll have the Senate. So that's a big impact, even if this doesn't end up being a continuing division in the Republican Party. But I think it does have the potential to become a continuing division in the party because it creates this idea among a large fraction of Republicans that uh, Trump did not lose legitimately, didn't lose fair and square in this election, and that can be a sort of powerful glue that keeps the president still viable as a political figure in the Republican Party. In a way that it is, you're right, yeah, I mean, I mean usually when a Republican president loses re-election, that person fades away as a political figure. That happened to Jimmy Carter, it happened to George H.W. Bush, but it might not happen in the case of Donald Trump. Well, especially when you get 12 million more votes the second time around than you did the first time around, which just feeds the idea that um, the incredulousness that a lot of Republicans have trying to 
internalize the idea that he could lose under these circumstances. You uh, write about the new GOP that, um, you know, maybe if Trump uh, is sidelined and he doesn't come back four years from now, that you'll have people try to do Trumpism without uh, some of the Trump personality, character flaws, excesses. You take a step back and say, well, uh, in order for that to potentially be the paradigm, we have to understand exactly what Trumpism is. And um, what is it? Yeah, that's that's the question, right? So I think that that there is a lot of disagreement um, at every level about how much of Trump's appeal or his bond with Republican voters and some people who haven't traditionally been Republican voters is about his personality and his approach and his combativeness, his uh, his willingness to uh, to fight at least <laughs> on Twitter, and how much of it is based on things like his support for tariffs or his strong opposition to illegal immigration uh, or, you know, and, you know, I think a lot of people would say it's somewhere in the middle, but how much of each? And so I think one of the things you're going to see is some politicians trying to position themselves in a post-Trump Republican Party, assuming that one of that there is a post-Trump Republican Party soon. And as, as you said, they will try to be kind of Trumpism without the off-putting aspects without the things that that made him unpopular and pulled down his support. But I think there's also going to be some people who say, well, maybe what we need is sort of the pre-Trump Republican um, policies, tax cuts, deregulation, all the stuff that sort of survived the Trump years, but maybe make it a little tougher, a little more combative, have a little bit more of the Trump style. Um, so I think you're going to see both of those things happen, and probably what's going to have to happen is presidential candidates on the Republican side will be testing out these approaches uh, and seeing what the what the market wants. Uh, well, when we come back with uh, Ramesh, we'll talk a little bit more about this question of uh, the party's attitude as much as their policy agenda and, and um, also how uh, far left the Democrats go, how that will impact what the new GOP might look like. More with Ramesh Panaru, Senior Editor for National Review, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute right after this. Listen, the more you'll know, this is is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, I mentioned uh, before the break uh, the uh, Lynn Wood, Sidney Powell rally presser Pentecostal revival yesterday. Uh, Lynn Wood in particular uh, going uh, biblical, talking about uh, the walls of Jericho that are to come tumbling down. This is our country. We tell government what they can and cannot do. They do not control the people. This is our country. We're going to take it back. We're circling the walls of Jericho. People are praying in this country. We're circling the walls of Jericho. And God Almighty is going to tear the walls down, and we're going to take America back again. You watch it happen. Well, and uh, the trumpet shall blare uh, more uh, for uh, this is interesting, too, because this is juxtaposed against something that happened 24 hours earlier, which is Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski standing on a uh, dais or before the Associated D.C. Press with Democrats saying we've received, we've uh, uh, 
uh, achieved a compromise proposal for more COVID relief. I'm a deficit hawk, said Mitt Romney. That's why I only want to spend a trillion dollars of funny money, not $2 trillion. And here we are in a bipartisan compromise because that's what the people want us to do. The question is, does that really uh, have any uh, uh, appeal in the Republican Party ranks where the center of gravity is within the Republican Party? For help with answering that question, we're pleased to be rejoined by Ramesh Panaru, Senior Editor for National Review, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, Visiting Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And Ramesh, uh, sort of an interesting juxtaposition, huh, what Lynn Wood uh, was offering versus what Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski were were offering and whether or not uh, those two um, approaches can coexist within a Republican within a Republican Party in the Trump era or post. Yeah, that's that's right. And you can extend that analysis to the sorts of things the president has been saying, where uh, before the election he was saying um, we should err on the side of spending too much, that we're much more likely to spend too little than too much. And then after uh, the election more recently, he has you know, partly because he's been preoccupied with the uh, with contesting the election. Uh, he's had less of that to, ta- to say, but he's also suggested that uh, he wants a stripped down package now. Uh, and so I think this is just emblematic of the fact that Republicans are not quite sure where they stand on some of these central questions about spending. And of course, you know, to give them to, to be fair, uh, the course of the pandemic and the economy has been uh, sometimes surprising and unpredictable. Uh, and so there's been a, some sentiment among Republicans to sort of wait and see what the needs are. Um, I do think that there is pretty widespread agreement that some funding is needed for things like vaccine distribution. Right. And, and much less agreement on things like bailing out to big blue states and cities. But, right. but, but, but here's the thing, you know, I'm thinking about this after reading your piece. I, I go I go back to something that uh, Simon Sinek said in a popular TED talk he gave a few years ago. Simon Sinek, who's a, a PR maven, said um, people don't uh, buy what you do. They buy why you do it. So uh, until you answer the why question, I'm not so interested in the what question. And it seems to me that people, uh, the Republican Party, bought the why Trump does what he does. And the why was... I'm on your side. I'm the first guy in a long time who's actually on your side, on the ground, fighting out against all of those people who want to lord over you and have made your worse, your life worse in the process of lording over you, Republicans and Democrats. And so they bought the why. And so some of the what is less important to them because they feel like this is a guy who's in the foxhole with me. And so for for all of the, the uh, criticisms and the consternation over some of President Trump's antics, uh, among myself included, uh, boy, that is a powerful market position that he occupies. And it is not easy to occupy that because people have to believe it's authentic. And frankly, most of these politicians don't radiate authenticity, including in the Republican ranks. I think that that is a a certainly an element of his appeal. Uh, And one of the questions is, how much is it going to endure, right? I mean, there's always a danger that people have been predicting for a long time for him and haven't been right, but you know that doesn't mean they, they won't be right eventually, that people get tired of, uh, of him, that they, they start tuning him out, 
um, that he doesn't, especially once he no longer has that megaphone that comes from being the president of the United States. Uh, but I think we can tr- count on him to uh, to try to make the most of whatever microphone he's got. Right, and so um, so you, you've seen some auditions already to try to to add to, if not ultimately fill the void that's left when Trump departs from the scene, whatever that is. Uh, uh, Marco Rubio's speech about uh, common good capitalism a couple of years ago at Catholic University, some of the battles that Josh Hawley has taken up against big tech, they're sort of of that same tenor of saying, um, you know, those uh, elites in these institutions, um, they don't represent your interests, and I'm willing to take them to task on your behalf. Uh, but, but it seems to me that that is still a market position that uh, the Republican Party needs to own if it's going to be competitive, much less successful in national elections. Yeah, what I would say is that Holly and Rubio um, are trying to kind of put, a, put some meat on the bones uh, and sort of take these, these themes um, and impulses that Trump reflected uh, and try to sort of say, okay, well, if, if that's what we want to do, um, what should this mean in practice uh, about our policy on trade or what we do about big tech and so forth? So that's, a, that's an example of, of maybe Trumpism, um, but without kind of the, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not, not really the Trump style um, either of these gentlemen has. Uh, and Trumpism translated, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. It's sort of, you know, exactly, and, and so the question is, yeah. really, you know, how much of it is that substance? Uh, how much of the and and how much of it, um, how much of the authenticity you were talking about, uh, will they be able to uh, capture if they if they don't sort of sound like Trump? He is Ramesh Panaru, senior editor for National Review, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Ramesh, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. You can never surrender. And if your path won't lead you home, you can never surrender. Listen to podcasts of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we closed the program today with day two of the James O'Keefe Project Veritas uh, CNN 9 a.m. editorial call dumps after he was surreptitiously uh, dialing into their daily editorial call and discussion for, I guess, the better part of a couple of months, thanks to somebody he had the, on the inside of CNN. And it's instructive what they say. Listen to uh, what they had to say in this uh, latest offering from James O'Keefe from the conference call about uh, the Hunter Biden story when it was broken by the uh, New York Post. Just think about this. Normalization is something they like to use. Jeff Zucker uses it all the time. We can't normalize Trump. We can't normalize his behavior. We can't normalize uh, his policy agenda. We can't normalize anything with respect to the Trump administration. Uh, We also can't normalize anything with respect to CNN in a conversation about journalism because the two are diametrically opposed. 
And so it's important, even though this may be confirmation of what you already suspected to be true, even though this may not come as a particular surprise, remember it, file it away, have it at the ready for future conversations to disabuse other people as well of any notion that uh, Jeff Zucker and his apparatchiks are in the news business. They're not. I think uh, on the Breitbart, New York Post, Fox News, rabbit hole of Hunter Biden, which I don't think anybody outside of that world understood last night, the Wall Street Journal reported that uh, their review of all corporate records so showed no role for Joe Biden uh, on the um, uh, on the Chinese deal. And yes, I do put more credibility in the Wall Street Journal than I do in the New York Post. Um, obviously, uh, we're not going Fair with man. the uh, New York Post story uh, right now on Hunter Biden, and uh, which seems to be uh, giving its marching orders to Fox News and the right-wing echo chamber about what to uh, talk about today. Obviously, Hunter Biden's lawyer is quoted in that New York uh, Post piece, and we'll just continue to report out this is the very stuff that the president was impeached over. This is the stuff that Senate committees looked at and found nothing wrong in uh, Joe Biden's uh, interactions uh, with Ukrainians so. and and uh, now having an email that uh, perhaps there was a meeting with someone uh, from Burisma is, uh, uh, it seems, uh, Rudy Giuliani's sort of dream of vision of, of how to throw stuff at the wall in these closing days of the campaign. Hey, Jeff, it's just David on the Burisma story, and we should be awfully careful about that, obviously. But I do think there's a media story of what in the world are Maggie Haberman and uh, Jake Sherman doing retweeting that story. Mm-hmm. Of course, we have Hunter Biden's uh, phone call, Hunter Biden, talking about uh, his father and their involvement. We have the information from a former Hunter Biden business partner, the extensive interview that Tucker Carlson did that uh, provides all sorts of documentation. None of this is of interest to CNN. We have a Senate intelligence report on Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings, which presents all sorts of potential problems. None of this is of interest to CNN. Yeah. So as I said, file that away. And uh, remember uh, this pending who knows what may yet come from the Duran investigation now that he's been given special counsel designation. Maybe that's hoping against hope, but at this juncture, that may be all we have. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Please do so again to close out the week tomorrow. This is The Dan Prof Show.